the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a high rating on your podcast provider. This podcast is supported by listeners. Please consider joining me at Substack, where you'll also have access to frequent posts on current and historical events. It's an honor and delight to have Brooks Newmark, co-founder of Angels for Ukraine, join us on the scene today. Welcome, Brooks Newmark. Delighted to be with you, Jim. Always Brooks, can I please uh, take a moment to share some details about you and your illustrious career with those who may not have the benefit of knowing you until now? Brooks Newmark is a businessman, philanthropist, politician, and social reform campaigner. He's a research associate and visiting academic at the University of Oxford and a former politician who held numerous senior roles in the UK Parliament over the course of a decade. In his political career and beyond, Brooks has campaigned to end the plight of homelessness and dedicated his career to building strong and healthy communities. And before politics, he had a successful career in the financial sector. He's an angel investor in several companies and remains so today. Brooks Newmark, would you please tell us about what you're up to, the mission of Angels for Ukraine? Sure. Well, um, you know, just to to go back a bit, um, we actually, yeah, I'll, I'll start with that, but then we, we can go back as to what sort of motivated me, uh, you know, to get engaged. So, you know, Angels yes. for Ukraine is something really um, I... I started at the spur of the moment. I'm, one of the things I'm actually doing is I'm doing a doctorate um, uh, at Oxford at the moment. And I was actually doing my field research in Rwanda. And um, I just literally just finished um, my field research and it was the 24th of February last year. And I was about to go scuba diving with a friend of mine when I noticed that uh, another friend of mine posted um, on Instagram, uh, one of the few good things about modern technology, um, that he had a bus on the border and was beginning to move uh, refugees from Ukraine, from the edge of the Polish border into other places in Europe. And I just instinctively decided not to go scuba diving because I thought I can always do that. And I said, hey, can I come and join you for four days? And he said, sure. And I sort of did. And because I'm uh, enthusiastic with whatever I do, I realized there was a huge problem that was developing very fast. So I ended up staying not four days. I then ended up staying two weeks. And um, we were busy moving people away from the border. And uh, my friend decided to go back to Riga because he's from Latvia. And I said, look, I'll stay, but I want to try and get um, into Ukraine itself. Can you find me some buses? And then I, he got me three buses from Lithuania, in fact, not Latvia. And I, I sort of went into Ukraine, not really knowing it that well, and started shuttling people away from where the Russians at that time were attacking um, the capital, Kiev. And a lot of people were, unfortunately, during war 
and were ripping people off in in offering to move them. And I decided to sort of do everything for free. So I quickly got a lot of people who were taking effectively my bus service from the war zone in Kiev at the time, taking them to the border. And then they would then cross the border and, and sort of get on to wherever they were going to. As the Russians were pushed out of Kiev, um, there was then a huge amount of pressure from Mariupol. So I moved my operation um, um, down to the south, to Vinitsa and to uh, Zaporizhia, and was shuttling people away from Mariupol. And really, over time, um, as the war shifted, I also shifted my operation. So I sort of ended up in Kharkiv, which is in the eastern end of Ukraine, and it was there pretty much for the best part of the last six months of last year. And, you know, over that time, literally from a standing start, we ended up moving um, over 21,000 women and children away from the war zone, but keeping them in Ukraine. We weren't taking them out of the country because most of them wanted to stay in the country. They just wanted to get away from where um, the bombs were dropping and the Russians were attacking. So that, in essence, was sort of how I got engaged. I really set up Angels for Ukraine fairly recently because I was sort of going to a few friends of mine trying to raise money, and more and more people said, how can I donate? And so I thought, you know, um, this war is probably going to continue, at least for another year. So I, I, I set up a charity called Angels for Ukraine. So now I can get more than just a sort of handful of people um, who are donating to me now. Brooks, we'll turn back to this, but uh, is it a registered charity such that American no. listeners or others could give online? Yes, I mean, not online. Um, they can give online, um, but uh, um, I've got a US 501c3 that is supporting Ukraine um, that uh, I'm using at the moment. So if people wanted to donate, um, it's called Be Human Kindness, and it's based in Texas, and they are supporting Ukraine, but they're also also supporting my work. So because it takes a long time to set up a 501c3 or it takes a long time to do the equivalent in the UK, um, I quickly set up a charity based in Ukraine. Um, but I've got a number of US donors now who are giving through the 501c3. So I can I can leave the details of that with you and you can maybe post it as part of the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you. That would be great. Brooks Newmark, let's go back a step. I mean, you you said this in such a matter of fact, modest way, but there you were. You know history better than most anybody. You saw problems happening in a region that's been called the bloodlands, the intersection of Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, Russia, the Baltic states. What motivated you to actually take the steps to do this? I mean, I will tell you, Part of what I'm asking is, I'm always intrigued that so many people will hear discussions about war or horrific regimes like the Nazis, the communists, and they'll say, well, I, this is them speaking, I would definitely be on the heroic side, but the fact is they wouldn't. And I'm not trying to just flatter you, but it's a fact you have done a pretty rare thing. What prompted that? Well, uh, it's a, uh, to be blunt, I completely loathe um, Putin. Um, and uh, I, 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 as by way of background, because your listeners won't know this, I spent um, 
a significant amount of time in Syria um, when that civil war <clears throat> started. And I saw the huge um, civilian casualties at the time. Um, and I felt that we let down the moderate opposition in Syria. We didn't support them when we should have, um, with the result that the people who were fighting Bashar Assad and the Russians who came in a bit later, um, the moderates became increasingly radicalized. But the but this whole war now in Ukraine, you sort of say I'm a student of history. I'm also a student of current affairs. And this all started because uh, President Obama set a red line, which is said that if Bashar Assad drops chemical weapons in Syria, um, that we would do something about it. And at the end of the day, um, the British Parliament and I was an MP at the time. Um, we, we we thought we had a deal with the Labour Party. They were going to abstain on the vote at the end of um, I think it was August 2013. And um, overnight, um, the Labour Party, instead of abstaining, voted against our motion, which was to say we should join uh, the US in, in a coalition to effectively take out all the air support that Syria had on the ground, certainly for a effectively breaching this red line. Because we lost that vote narrowly, um, President Obama effectively abrogated his responsibility um, by saying, well, no, I'm going to let Congress decide. I, because of what <clears throat> I think what we did in the UK and what the Labour Party did, the U US also blinked. This sent a very powerful message, not just to Bashar Assad, that um, the West's word, particularly the US's word, is completely meaningless and actually sent a powerful message to Put to President Putin that, hey, actually, maybe we can do a bit more. So your some of your listeners will know in 2014, they uh, ended up moving into eastern Ukraine, into the Donbass region. The West jumped up and down. Putin then said, these guys are still not doing anything. Actually, I think I'm going to take Crimea. So the next thing he did was he had this this sort of uh, fake uh, a referendum in um, Crimea and basically took away Crimea from Ukraine. So so the lesson that Putin was getting from the West is, is, you know, we talk the talk, but we actually don't do anything. Now, when it came to a full-on invasion in Ukraine, I was so sort of personally enraged by this behavior um, that I just sort of had to go in and do something. Now, I'm not a soldier, um, but I can do something, which is to go in and, and help civilians when they need help. So this sort of motivated. Now, I didn't know literally from week to week what I was doing. I just sort of got stuck in and said, I'm just going to get uh, engaged with what's going on. It just so happened that, you know, a quick four day trip ended up becoming a, a sort of a year of engagement. Now, you know, how does somebody like myself get engaged in the way that I do? Well, you know, I have two strengths in my background. One is that I'm I understand government. I understand politics, but I also understand the importance of local government. And the second thing I have is is business. So I. I, I I recognized that if, if I wanted to do what I needed to do effectively, I had to work 
with the various local governments in Ukraine. So I contacted, I literally, I contacted one mayor, having had a good meeting with that mayor and saying, look, I am here to help you move civilians out. Tell me where to go. I say, hey, can you tell me, can you introduce me to the mayor of Venitsa, for example? Sure. The next mayor of Venitsa, can you in introduce me to the to the mayor of Kharkiv? Of course. And one thing led to another. And I noticed that what was amazing to me was because um, of my business background, how easy it was for me to scale up because there was literally nobody on the ground moving people in the way that I was moving people. A number of volunteers, ones and twos, who would take small groups of people away from the war zone, but there would seem to be nobody working with the local government. And that's important because they tell you where to go. They will give you the protection when you go into somewhere. So when we see in the news, you know, this person or that person ends up getting shot or killed, it's because, you know, you can't just walk into a war zone and then think you're invincible and can can do things. You know, wishful thinking doesn't mean that you can actually do it. You know, I was actually very methodical in the way that I did it and very effective. So word got out pretty quickly. So I ended up having a whole network of local governments, you know, basically all the major towns, beginning sort of with Odessa in the south, moving across to Mikolaev, Kherson, Zaporizhia, and then moving up to Kharkiv and Dnipro and Sumy. And, I, you know, I, I now have this relationship with all these people, so I can move very quickly. So most of the time, someone can literally call me. Any of these people can call me, and within 24 or 48 hours, I can go to wherever they want me to go to and and collect people, and as many people as possible. I mean, at one stage, I, I moved over a thousand people who crossed the border from a, a Russian controlled area in, in Kharkiv region. And I did that. I needed to get 20 buses there and everything else. But, you, you know, I think over time you learn quickly. But I'm, I, you know, um, without flattering myself, I'm just I feel I'm very organized. Well, those of us who had the benefit of knowing you would not be surprised by your organization skills. They're obviously very, very high. Let me ask you a question, Brooks Newmark. Most people listening have not been in a war zone. What surprised you the most? What's happening on the ground? What is it like to see and smell and touch and feel this, this battle in this historical, troubled, pivotal area? I, I, you know, I guess there are two things that struck me. One, on a personal level, I, you know, um, I, 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 it's as though I, I sort of miss a fear chip in me. So, I, I, you know, at no stage did I feel nervous or frightened. And you're sort of hearing the bombs dropping all around where you were. So it's sort of strange. I was in Kharkiv for a lot of the time. I'd be sitting in the back garden where I was staying. And, you know, every two minutes you'd be, you know, you'd be hearing bombs drop. And then it was like listening for the sounds of birds. Oh, that must that's a Russian grad that because that goes boom, 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 you know, or this is the Ukrainians replying. And, you know, you sort of it becomes like white noise in many ways. Um, and, and I think that's probably one of the things that that sort of helped me. And as I said, while I'm not a soldier, um, soldiers who I've explained this feeling to that I don't 
this there's something within me that doesn't uh, uh, make me worried. Um, you know, I think is the difference that you know makes certainly some soldiers more successful than others. And from a as a humanitarian person in a war zone, I think it helps me that I don't I don't get flustered at all. I'm quite calm under under pressure and under fire, which which sort of helps. I think the second thing um, struck me was um, the absolute devastation, um, particularly in the in the east. But I think, um, you know, when I first went there in to Kiev, you know, the surrounding villages of, of Bucha and Bordyanka and Irpin, literally every single building was destroyed. And, you know, targeting civilians is a war crime. And what Putin is committing in Ukraine is a war crime. Um, and we have to be well aware of that. This, the other thing was, you know, many of the women who I met told me horrendous stories of rape. And, you know, it was just not one or two. It's just like literally every bus that I ended up picking people in and I talked to, it was just one story of rape after the other. And it seems as though there's this embedded culture in the Russian military which is a little bit like hazing, where the senior officer will tell the young recruits, you know, you are to rape these women there. And they sort of go about it. There was a 41-year-old woman, one story I met, who said, you know, there were these 18 and 19-year-old boys who wanted to, uh, you know, effectively rape me. Um, and, um, and I was with my friend, and my friend literally, she said, looked away, literally, looked away, all she was looked away. She was immediately shot. And then the, this 41-year-old woman who said, you know, I just sort of effectively just had to let them do what they wanted to do. And, you know, there are many, many stories um, like that. But it's this combination of, of uh, you almost become numb um, and angry at the same time when you hear one story after the next of the brutality of the Russians uh, in Ukraine. It's as though they've dehumanized the uh, Ukrainians. And in many ways, it is a, also a form of genocide because they're trying to destroy anything to do with Ukrainian history, language, culture, and so on. So when they go into somewhere like uh, Zaporizhia, which they've gotten a chunk of, uh, Kherson and so on, they immediately, you know, anyone who carries any identity of Ukrainian, uh, is arrested. Um, they, they get rid of the currency. They use rubles. Um, you cannot speak Ukrainian. Um, any uh, literature books are banned uh, in those areas now that are in Ukrainian. This is all part of all the signs for me of a, of a cultural genocide as well as a, as a physical genocide going on. And at some stage, we sort of have to call Putin and the Russians to account. And I'm not sure how we're going to do this, but the one of the good things about this war, unlike any other war, is that every single second of every single day is being documented by the Ukrainians on the war crimes being committed by the Russian soldiers in the name of Putin. And we have to find some sort of mechanism ultimately to 
hold him to account, whether it's through the ICC or to set up some special tribunal like the Nuremberg trials. You know, the brutality has been unbelievable there. Let's talk a minute about what you just touched on about nationalism. People often look at this war and they see Putin trying to define or redefine or invent a sense of Russian nationalism. And then President Zelensky is seen as having elicited a compelling and to many observers unexpectedly strong strand of Ukrainian nationalism. How do you see this? Well, you know, um, not to give a, a brief history lesson, but in 1993, the um, the Ukrainians had um, lots of nuclear weapons. They were told that if they gave up their nuclear weapons, um, that and this was something called the Budapest Agreement, that um, their territorial integrity and their sovereignty would be protected. The three signatories to that agreement, the Budapest Agreement, were the UK, the USA, and Russia. Oh. That was the deal. You give up your nuclear weapons, your territorial integrity will be protected. So under international law, we have certainly a moral duty, if not a legal duty, to live up to the Budapest Agreement. The fact that one of those three signatories is breaking that because they would like to uh, effectively reinvent a new Soviet Union um, and now have Ukraine as part of a greater Russia, um, you know, the world should be condemning them. And I find it appalling when I look at South Africa or India and so on, who themselves have always complained about colonialism, but ironically seem to be siding with Putin. And, you know, Putin is a colonialist in this way. He is being the colonial power. They should be condemning him for that, but they're not. And, you know, I think this is a war in which you can't sort of sit on the fence with. This is this is one large country being utterly brutal to a much smaller country, having signed an agreement, the Budapest Agreement, that they will respect the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Ukraine is a U United Nations recognized country. And this is not to go on to a different be in my bonnet about this. This is why the United Nations is no longer fit for purpose. You cannot yeah. have a Security Council in which one of those parties can do whatever it wants with impunity, because even though it's the perpetrator of the, this violence, it has a veto right. I mean, how absurd and Kafkaesque is that? You know, it's interesting, Brooks, that the Budapest Agreement you refer to, I don't think many Americans are aware of this at all. Yeah, so, so just again, just to briefly summarize. So when the Soviet Union broke up, um, there were a series of new state, new countries created. One of those countries, you know, people know about Georgia, not the state, but the country, uh, uh, Belarus, um, uh, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan and so on. One of those countries was Ukraine. Um, eight of the Soviet republics at that time um, had nuclear weapons. Suddenly, one of those republics was going independent. 
independent. And I think the international community was a little nervous that a new republic should have nuclear weapons. So um, three of the major powers on the UN Security Council at the time um, did a deal with Ukraine and said, okay, you want your independence, you can be an independent Ukraine, recognized by the UN and so on, um, but you have to give up your nuclear weapons. And we, uh, the USA, the United Kingdom and Russia will respect that decision if you give up those nuclear weapons. Now, um, you know, here we are 30 years later, because um, it was 1993 when that was signed, um, that, uh, you know, Putin's word is is worthless because he is not sticking by that agreement. Now, if you're a, a country who he may be trying to persuade to not have nuclear weapons or uh, trying to say, don't have, don't create nuclear weapons. Certainly the lesson uh, of this is that, the, hey, the only way we can protect ourselves is if we have some sort of nuclear ability. Otherwise, the big guys will step all over us. And that's effectively what's happened is Ukraine gave up their nuclear weapons in exchange for having the protection of a sovereign country. And that has now been breached by by one of those three signatories, which is Russia. And Libya might have said something similar. So other countries are taking these lessons, no doubt. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. You know, we're trying to say to Iran, hey, you shouldn't be nuclear. Well, you know, what are the, what's the lesson they're taking from that? We want to protect ourselves. The only way anyone's going to listen to us is if we're a nuclear power. Um, so, Brooke, you know, and then, Brooks, and then you, and that, the unintended consequences of that is then Saudi say, hey, why shouldn't we be nuclear? We don't want a nuclear Iran. We need to protect ourselves from Iran. So we're going to become nuclear, too. And it'll it'll lead from one bad thing to, to the next. Yes. Sorry, Jim. Yeah. No, excuse me. And so, Brooks Newmark, let's go back a step. There's a lot of talk and concern, and one often gets an impression from afar, which obviously could be totally wrong. You're right there, that the Russians and Ukrainians have to be very careful uh, that they don't do something that might trigger a Russian nuclear uh, strike of some kind. How do you think about that? Well, I, you know, I think I think two things. First of all, we can't live our lives being subject to nuclear blackmail. Um, Putin to threaten a nuclear weapon is very, very different than Putin actually using one. So let's follow that scenario through. Um, so let's just say Putin is pushed back, he's pushed back and is being completely driven out of Ukraine. So he decides to use what is commonly referred to as a tactical nuke, uh, which is a nuke by any other definition. Um, now, a tactical nuke will have, you know, a limited effect in a relatively small area. It'll probably maybe kill up to 20,000 people um, in perhaps a town. Um, and to him to demonstrate that he's serious. Um, I, I, you know, my understanding is and I'm not privy to anything, but I believe he is. He has been informed on no uncertain terms that within 72 hours, um, you know, we collectively will respond not with a nuclear strike, but with a massive conventional strike. A massive conventional strike would take out every single 
Ukrainian soldier that is anywhere left in Ukraine, as well as to take out the whole of the Russian Baltic fleet. So that's number one. Uh, Putin's generals are terrified that this would happen because this would completely denude them of any form of military strength or military power. Number two, um, you know, I think that it's it, it, it's the, the likelihood of him really doing that is small for another reason. It's that at the moment we see two of the larger powers, uh, China and India, um, that have effectively either been sitting on the fence or aiding and abetting Putin, either economically, um, certainly as the uh, Indians are doing, or militarily as the Chinese are doing at the moment. So um, they would, I think if Putin did a nuclear strike, he would, he would suddenly really generally become a pariah state. And I think, I'm, I'm guessing here, that the Chinese and the Indians have, have told him that. So he would really be, take Russia back to the Stone Ages. And, you know, if you're one of the many people who are wealthy that have benefited from, you know, being able to do business with the outside world outside of Russia, you know, at some stage, you know, I think someone will move Putin. They're not going to let him uh, create a nuclear holocaust in the world. So let's pursue that a little more. Let's say that President Biden contacted you and you've held high office. It wouldn't be that much of an act of imagination. And we're to say, Brooks Newmark, you've totally convinced and reinforced my view of the significance of the Russian invasion. What would be victory? A victory is is when Russia is pushed out of every square. It's it's what the it's what the Ukrainians are thinking now. You, you know, at the beginning of this war, you know, when I was talking to people, there were a number of Ukrainians that probably actually to end this war quickly would have probably done some deal over Crimea and the Donbass. But the violence that um, that Russia has now inflicted on the civilian population throughout the whole country. Um, means that there is no room for negotiation now. Um, and, and I know there's probably a lot of students of negotiation um, and, and people out there saying, well, we've, we've got to try and, and do a deal with him and so on. The problem is, is that unless Putin is defeated 100% in Ukraine, pushed out of every square inch of Ukraine, he will come back again. He will then Let's just say we, 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 we did a deal. We said, OK, fine, keep Luhansk, keep Donetsk, you know, which is right on the eastern border um, of Ukraine. Keep uh, Crimea. He'll go back. He'll he'll figure out he'll learn some lessons as to why this war was a complete disaster for him. He will rebuild up his arms. And he will come back again in three, four years for another crack at U Ukraine. And and why not? hey, the West really did nothing. So why don't I actually bite off something easier? I'll take Georgia. Why not Georgia? You know, and, you know, if I can get into Ukraine, maybe I can take Moldova. At some stage, we in the West have to say enough is enough. And he is he has gone against any single international laws that there are out there, um, you know, in this war. As I said, he's 
for no reason at all invaded a sovereign state. Number two, he's created war crimes. And number three, you know, he is beginning to create some form of genocide in the areas that he does control, the four areas of Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk, and Luhansk. And, you know, we have to say enough is enough. Now, Ukraine, in many ways, is a European country. It's very different than, and I know a lot of your listeners will have sort of suffered what went on with Afghanistan and Iraq, but this is a very different sort of war. This is, in many ways, a European country that is under attack by Russia, and we just can't stand back and do something. And the sort of drip, drip, drip that's gone on in the past, certainly the first 10 months of this war, by our refusal to give Ukraine what it needs to fight this war, there's not a single US or British soldier that is going to lose their life in this war. It is the Ukrainians that are having their lives on the line. We should give them the tools that they need to to win this war. And if we do, they will win this war and they will beat the Russians. But we have to support them 100% to the hilt. And by the way, it, 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 but by the way, Jim, you know, this is, so what are we saying? So Putin is, you know, Russia is one of our big, uh, other than I'd say China out there and, and to a lesser, lesser extent Iran, you know, one of our big, big enemies. This is why particularly America spends a huge amount on its military hardware and its defense budget. You know, what we're spending at the moment is supporting Ukraine in order for them to beat Russia and to finish them off completely is about five or 6% of your military budget. For me, as a businessman, that's a pretty good deal with no Americans sacrificing their lives. Hmm. And what is the role in your vision of other European countries in this? Could they end up having to send troops or where do they? Germany, uh, France, Poland. How do you see this shaking out? Well, I mean, you know, this is why this what this war has shown is the concept of a European defense strategy is a complete joke. So let's take those three countries that you mentioned, Poland versus Germany versus France. Okay, Poland, you know, is, you know, if there's one country Putin loathes probably more than, than or probably as much as the UK is Poland. You know, the Poles are very, uh, um, you know, feel obviously for obviously historical reasons, very nervous about, you know, what Putin is up to. So they're highly critical, hugely supportive of Ukraine. Um, they accepted within the first month or so of this war, over two and a half million Ukrainians and didn't keep them in flapping tents. They housed them all. They found homes for every single person who came across the border. Um, and so we have to sort of uh, congratulate the Poles for, for, for what they what they did there. So the Poles are very different than the Germans. The, 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 actually, no, let's before we get to Germany, let's let's move on to Macron. So Macron in France, you know, you know, he likes to sort of think he's the great negotiator and that, um, you know, he had something like 90 hours of discussions with Putin, I think in the first two months of this war. Complete waste of time. Putin has no interest in engaging and talking. He, he has two defaults, either 100 percent capitulation or 100 percent I destroy you. Macron simply did not understand this. Um, 
The Germans, on the other hand, have their whole legacy of of the Second World War. And, um, you know, having obviously been an aggressor in two world wars, um, they were very nervous, I'm guessing, about getting too engaged with this. So so from an historical perspective, um, I can see the, the Germans' reticence to this. But actually, given what they did, I would argue just the opposite. Given what they did in the Second World War, they too had a moral obligation to really step up and support the Ukrainians against the war crimes and genocide that's going on in that country. The second thing, though, with Germany is they made the fatal mistake uh, under 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 um, Schroeder uh, and his successors of feeling if they had an economic relationship with Russia, there was a lower probability of there being war. And this, again, was a flawed strategy because you're not dealing with a partner that wants peace. What Putin then did was use energy as a weapon of war in order to put huge pressure on Germany to slow down supporting Ukraine, which is what we really saw in the first half of this war. And even until recently, you know, we, 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 we saw this with the, with the leopard tanks, that the Germans being incredibly slow, equivocating, not allowing other countries even to send their, their leopard tanks um, in to support Ukraine. Now, in the past few days, they finally agreed to that, um, luckily, which is which is great. So I think the motivations of the three European countries that you you mentioned are very different, which means the whole idea, the strength of the West, I believe, as somebody from the UK, is through NATO, not a European defense alliance. The, you know, the Europeans, unfortunately, cannot agree on anything. And I think that if they try to peel themselves away from NATO, it would be a disaster. Now, let's one other thing. One, I, actually, actually, Jim, 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 I do want to say one other thing. Yes. You know, when, you know, uh, President Trump actually made a really good point when he was, we had, I don't know, I think on YouTube, you can see this interview that Trump has with the European Union and the Germans. And he effectively says, you guys, by relying 100% or 80%, you know, of your energy on uh, on Russia, are effectively sending billions and billions every month to Russia to fund their whole military. That is what you're doing. You are, by buying their energy, you are funding Russia's military. And I don't, and there's this sort of wall of silence on the other side, but that's the truth of it. You know, one of the other lessons of this war is that, you know, we cannot rely on on certain resources uh, uh, that are important to us, even food, food, energy, strategic materials from these uh, unstable or hostile countries, whether that's, and for me, I would include China in that. You know, China China could do the same. We, we, we've created this economic relationship with China that we've suddenly become hugely dependent on them. And I think that, um, you know, we and I think they're watching very carefully how we in the West react, because obviously they have their long term interest in Taiwan. So I, I think that, you know, as this in this war, I think will end in the next whether year or year and a half. But I think we will 
as we support the Ukrainians more and more, we will see the end game to this. But I think in the West, we need to really rethink about our trading relationships, where we're getting certain stuff from. And we really need to be, I think, much more self-reliant, particularly in important areas like, like energy, strategic materials, um, and certain food products. We cannot rely on these um, hostile countries anymore. That's such an important point. And of course, it applies not only to uh, oil and gas, uh, which we're working so hard in the world to begin to decarbonize, but also for the critical minerals that are required for renewables. Absolutely. And all the battery technology. Do you realize that I think it's with tantalum, which is critical to um, to like mobile phones and car batteries and everything else that, that you know, the, the Chinese have like a 90 percent, almost a near monopoly on the production of that stuff. How have we let ourselves do that? Why? Because the, the, the Chinese now for about 30 years have been going around African countries, South American countries and effectively relatively cheaply doing deals with these governments in order to, you know, get a monopoly on the supply of certain strategic critical uh, materials. And actually, when you and I met, I think, at Oxford now for years ago, Jim, um, mm. that my, I was doing I was doing my doctorate on exactly this, on the importance of strategic materials why we in the West needed to stockpile this stuff more um, and that, you know, we needed to figure out a way to move ourselves away from the dependency from these, in this case, very unstable countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And I also looked at China and Russia at the time, who were also major suppliers of certain strategic and critical materials. So this is something that's not new. It's been around for a while. It's just unfortunate that no one's really taking it seriously. Let's have one more big picture question, uh, Brooks Newmark, for your perspective. Many people, either directly or they're almost afraid to say it, are concerned this might prompt a sort of 1914 moment, an unexpected connection of tripwires that could lead to a global conflict. What do you think about that? You know, I, I think uh, let's let's think who would join that global conflict. You know, I don't think China has any appetite at all to get engaged in a global war. Its whole premise is hugely driven by economics, um, you know, much more so than Russia. Russia is a geopolitical player, you know, for geopolitical reasons. China is a is a global player for economic reasons. It's got a huge population it needs to keep and work and to feed. I think it has no interest at all in getting engaged into a global war. So what we're left with is a is a fairly, you know, I, I think one of the things that we've learned with with Russia is that the emperor has no clothes. You know, when is the last time Russia has ever won a war? They haven't, not even in the Second World War. I mean, they withstood a lot, but they didn't win that war. Without the Americans, you know, half of them would be speaking German today. So, you know, Russia actually has never really, in certainly the best part of 70 plus years, won a single war that they've been 
um, engaged in. So, you know, I think a, a half, half, half trained, half armed, medium sized power has either, you know, called them to a stalemate in less than a year. And if not, is probably, you know, beaten them or going to be certainly be, beat them within a year, year and a half. So the question your listeners have to ask is, do they really think that Putin, with all the dysfunctionality that is in his kleptocracy, which is Russia today, can beat the might of 31 countries in who are somehow either in NATO or related to NATO, working with NATO, all the intelligence agencies, the UK, the USA, France, Germany, Canada, Australia, and so on. You know, this is this is no contest. There is there is not going to be a third world war. The only thing that would happen is that Putin drives the West to such an extent with with the war crimes that he's committing. Don't forget, it was the bombing two weeks ago in the Dnipro that ultimately led to to breaking the logjam on supplying a lot of these tanks. And I think every time Putin, you know, ups the ante, we up the ante back again. And in this game of poker, he hasn't got as many chips as we have, and he will lose. Brooks Newmark, before we turn to how people can follow you and your important work, are there any other topics that we've not discussed that you'd like to leave with us or any topics you'd like to reemphasize before we go? No, I, I mean, I think that, um, you know, for your listeners, you know, if you feel strongly about something, you, you know, you should just, you know, get up and do something about it. You know, there's no point in talking in the bar with your friends about it, yelling at the TV. You, you know, um, you know, I, I, I got involved in originally in public service because, you know, I truly believe that, you know, an individual can make change. We have the power within us to do it. The question is, do we have the willpower to do it? And it doesn't matter who you are. You know, I would encourage your listeners to get involved in community politics, politics on a, on a, on a town level, on a state level, you know, even on a national level. You know, we all complain about our politicians that are out there, but there's no point in complaining unless you yourself is willing to raise your head above the parapet. So I'm going to encourage your listeners out there, raise your head above the parapet, get engaged in your local community, get engaged with uh, whatever state, state that you're in, if you want to bring about change, get off your ass and do something about it. Brooks Newmark, you are active on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. May we include those links in the show notes for people to follow you going forward? Sure, sure, sure. Absolutely right. At Brooks Newmark. If you want to um, follow me in uh, specifically my charity, it's at Ukraine's Angels. And I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm on yeah, most social media, but I, I'm I'm pretty active nowadays on commenting almost on a daily basis what's going on in Ukraine, mainly through on Twitter, my Twitter page, and and in um, LinkedIn. So, but yeah, I'm I'm happy for you to put all that up, and um, feel free to to connect with me. And you know, if you've got comments on 
things you might have disagreed with me. Just send me send me a message on LinkedIn and, you know, tell me tell me why you disagree with me. You know, we each have our own opinions. We should be listening to each other. And, um, uh, you know, it's good that you you have me on. I hope I haven't been too um, too strong in my views. I like to think of myself as a as a Britain's version of John Bolton. But although John Bolton is a much uh, greater man than I am. But uh, but um, but yeah, no, I, I'm a, I'm a very robust um, conservative with both a small C and a capital C. Well, Brooks Newmark, co-founder Angels for Ukraine, thank you for your service, your leadership, for taking the time to speak with us today. And it's there's every reason to think that just as people in history doubtless inspired you to do this highly courageous and unexpected kind of work, uh, you will be inspiring others more than you could know. Hopefully, hopefully so, Jim. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having and me on your show. And thank you, our listeners, for being with us. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics. Follow us on Twitter at James Strock and connect via our website, Serve to Lead, or subscribe at Substack. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.